Our liberties we prize. Our rights we will maintain. You know that's what we say. But is that what we do? Oh, Iowa, what the hell happened to you? Well, Rika, welcome back from India. Thank you, Jules. It's ha- good to be back. How was your trip away from all of this madness going on in Iowa? Were you able to unplug and relax at all? Or what were your reflections? There was very little relaxation because it was a very busy time working on just personal things to do with my mother's estate. But I didn't unplug. I followed the news from there. And then when I came back, I had a stack of two weeks worth of registers from the doorstep that were piling up telling me what's been going on in this state. And quite frankly, one story more discouraging than the next. Just catching up on the news has put me in a bit of a funk, frankly. Mm -hmm. Just feeling so discouraged by what's going on because I, from everything I read and hear, it seems like we're heading into a totalitarian state government right now. It seems that everything that the Republican governor, Kim Reynolds, wants, she manages to engineer to get the power to do. and. It's what they mean by death by a thousand cuts. It feels as if democracy in Iowa is really eroding because one person is getting a disproportionate say in what happens. And that one person happens to be the governor. And she has actually, and I think she's brilliantly maneuvered this without having to make any major rule changes. She's doing it by merging state agencies. She's doing it by giving special powers to her attorney general to usurp the rights of local county attorneys, Mm -hmm. even though one of the Republican mantras has been local control. It's anything but local control that's going on in Iowa right now. Um, The war against the poor is particularly horrifying. And then, Julie, one of the other things that's really horrifying is that The polls that we've had, the Seltzer polls, which are always incredibly accurate, um, are showing that although a lot of them show that there is resistance to some of her policies, other polls are showing that Iowans are behind her, for example, on all of these very, very harsh punitive bills about LGBTQ people. A majority of Iowans are agreeing with her on that. What is going on in this state? It's just it's really, really, really very discouraging. And I am used to going off to India and other places and chatting up what Iowa has accomplished and how democratic it was and, you know, same-sex marriage and Obama and all of these legacies. And now I don't feel like there's a whole lot to boast about. I just see more more bad things coming down the pike all the time. How has it been being here while this was all going on, Jules? I think there is um, a real, real depression Depression going on among people I talked to, a kind of hopelessness, uh, helplessness. Was at a dinner party the other night, and people who are fairly committed to Iowa, born and raised, raised their families here, had careers here, have been engaged citizens, said they want to move. Yeah. And I thought, what? You want to move? Really? And uh, it's it's hard to it's hard to break out of that sort of malaise i don't know if that's the right word but this feeling of being helpless and hopeless 
And, you know, you and I were both so scattered yesterday. We yeah. hopped in the car and yeah. drove to Newton kind of rudderless. Well, what are we going to do? And we sat at the at the counter in the maid right and mm-hmm. had a long conversation with a couple of women from Kellogg, Iowa. Yeah. And, you know, we came home and I was just, I don't know, I just, I would just kind of want to give up. Yeah, but we cannot let ourselves think that way. I, I mean, I think I know we feel that when it's easy to feel that way, but we just can't. And I really appreciate the people who are turning out at the Capitol yes. every day to protest, to say, I will say gay or to say, you know, this pipeline is not going to go through. You can't do that. You cannot take my property by eminent domain for a private cause. Right. And that's happening every day. But the thing that's so discouraging, especially about even showing up at the Capitol, is doors are closed. People aren't allowed in. Committee meetings are declared off limits. The press is not allowed to be in the chambers anymore. When legislation is being debated, they have to be up at the top where the visitors go. So there is a real shutting out of any kind of dissent, which is why it's more important than ever for people to voice their dissent. And I think... Jules, there's so much that we're going to talk about in the future about where Democrats may have dropped the ball and where they need to get back into the game again. But one of the things that I'm really feeling right now is this is a time when people who really are marginalized and have been lacking in the power are the ones who have to be brought into the forefront and listened to. Their stories have to be told and heard. They need to be running for office and they need to be encouraged Mm -hmm. to do so. Mm -hmm. And I think there are enough constituencies right now that are really being put down, pushed down, that if they could get up and speak and form a united front. I mean, just look at labor, for example. It's just been so gutted. And, you know, if there were unions, and this is one of the interesting things, we were just talking to Nick Johnson, the former federal communications commissioner commissioner from Mm -hmm. Iowa, um, And he was talking about the power of labor having been diluted. He was talking about in the most, in the majority of their 3,000 something counties in the country, and 80% of those are Republican. And it used to be that 50% of workers belong to a union and now only something like 6% do. And that plays a big part in the kind of policies that are driven and made. Frank and I had a chance to talk to Nicholas Johnson, who's a retired academic and lawyer now living in Iowa City. He's written multiple books. He's a columnist. But what we were mostly interested in talking to him about was his role as a federal communication commissioner, a position he held from 1966 to 1973. We had a fun conversation with Nick Johnson the other day, and you'll hear more of that conversation in a future episode when we talk to him about media in Iowa. But this is an interesting comment he made about the Iowa Democratic Party. I just think the Democrats are so far on the wrong step. They want to reorganize. What's the first thing they do? Well, let's have a bunch of $2,000 and $1,000 contributors. Was there anybody at that meeting in Iowa City who belonged to a union or who was food insecure or whatever? No. How can you have a national political party when 80% of our 3,500 counties in this country are majority Republican? Whoa, all we got to do is get the money from Wall Street and the votes from the the left coast and 
Yeah, well, no, you need a little more than that. Okay, that's not what we've come to talk about. Back in the day, we used to have trade unions, and we've now drummed them out of business. I mean, the percentage of people in trade unions, uh, aside from public unions, is now, what, 6%? When it used to be 50%? There's a saying that is almost trite, but it's so true, and that is elections have consequences. And we're talking about the consequences of the past couple of elections. I was just listening to a podcast the other day with Ed Fallon and his wife, Kathy Burns, and she was talking about some of the food restrictions that the legislature right. toyed with. Snap. On what, and snap, exactly, on um, food assistance for poor people. They were trying to, and I, they didn't get away with a lot of this, but things like to buy cheese. You can't buy sliced cheese. You have to only buy it in hunks because it costs more to get sliced cheese. You can't buy bagged lettuce for salad. You have to buy the raw leaf of lettuce. You can't buy meat unless it's frozen meat. You can't buy fresh meat. That was a proposal. How degrading. That was those were the proposals, Mm -hmm. but how utterly degrading. In other words, you don't just take away more money from poor people, but you also Show them you're different than everybody else. Like everybody else can go in and buy sliced cheese for God's sake. But you can't do that because you're poor and you have to pay for it. You have to be punished for it and you have to be shamed for it. And it's an age-old trope. I, I remember politicians of, of the past would single out, quote-unquote, welfare queens. Mm-hmm. When in point of fact, the amount of, the amount of greed and corruption from white-collar crime is far exceeded Absolutely. any kind of one-off of somebody trying to get something off of welfare that they didn't deserve, quote-unquote, deserve. But it's it's a shell game, and you and I talk about this all the time. Yeah, It's so much easier mm-hmm. as a human being to put down somebody perceived as lesser than you, right. as, opposed to, as opposed to taking a look at the holistic, systemic issues that are going on. I go back and forth in my own mind about I don't want to talk about banned books. It's ridiculous. Uh-huh. It's absurd. It's outrageous. It's it's insane. Any child uh-huh. can has more capability of finding porn uh-huh. on their telephone uh-huh. than, exactly. than going into the public school library and not being able to pick out a book. And that just seems so obvious. Exactly. So the question is, why why is the governor so intent on passing laws like this around banned books and banning LGBTQ people from whatever, whether it's gender reassignment surgery or the ability to, you know, read stories about themselves in their books. Well, because these are, and as you have very often said, these are, these are ruses to keep people voting for her because they're fringe issues as far as the general public that doesn't know anything about them goes. So, yeah, you know, we, one of the women that we were talking to yesterday in the cafeteria said, I asked her, how does she think the governor is doing? And she said she really likes her because she said she's, um, you know, she's she's focusing, getting things on back on track, getting things back on track, which is a buzzword for she's not bending over backwards to, you know, the people who who are woke, quote unquote, and who want to have, you know, bathroom concessions for transgender people. I mean, that's that's how successfully Reynolds has managed to mess with people's brains, and make them think that there's this war on against them. And it's not just Reynolds. In fact, I don't want to give her more power than she... I'm, it's She's a national extremely movement. powerful right now. She, she is, but it's a part of a national movement where there's a lot of money coming in. 
Think of the money that came into this state right before the last election. Right. Targeting transgender kids. Right. Here we are in a state that's now number two in cancer cases. Nobody wants to talk about that. We want to talk about this teeny tiny percentage of of children, for God's sake, who are struggling with their own gender identity. Exactly. It's, It's absurd. And I... I go back and forth with you. We've had these conversations. I don't want to take the bait. Let's not take the bait. Let's not take the bait. But you can't help it. Yeah. I mean, you can't help it. Yeah. So, you know, we're talking about cancer patients. And there was a very well done um, column in the newspaper that ran actually today. Oh, good. Um, by, by Jackie Hale. And she's talking about cancer and Iowa having reached the number two rank of, of cancer in the, in, in the country. And she says at the same time that this is happening, Medicare, Medicaid patients, right, are being taken, are being stripped of um, the kind of autonomy that they used to have. And they would have to do work requirements in order to get Medicaid coverage. And she said this adds layers of administration and red tape to between Iowans and their doctors. So you have to catch cancer early. And right. the best chances of stopping it is if you get it early and start treating early. But when you have to jump through all of these hoops in order to qualify for Medicaid and all of these work requirements, even when there isn't work available for you that would be appropriate, then you're going to get behind on your cancer treatments. And these are just that's just one of the many, many ways in which disenfranchised people are kept disenfranchised. Now. Right. Oh, and then you can't have more than two cars in a family. Mm. Mm. You know, mm. never mind what kind of car. Right. I mean, it's just no bag lettuce and no more no lettuce in the fat. I mean, oh. for God's sake. How much worse can it be? Well, the, okay, here is a slight bit of optimism, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah. I think that based on my experience of, of becoming part of a generation in the 1960s that got mobilized and activized, Active activated because of the Vietnam War. Uh-huh. It was because we had a draft, and people my age, are, my generation's age, were being called up to fight a war that was controversial at at best. Uh-huh. I think now, because some of these issues are very personal, whether it's kids today know somebody who's transgender or gay. Ten percent of ten percent means you got to have friends and family who fall into that category at some point or other. So it, it's a human issue. It becomes a personal issue. And I think that's going to fuel a level of activism that hopefully will mean more people will not only call attention to these issues with their own elected representative, but they might decide to run for office themselves. Well, I certainly hope so. I mean, I think the big challenge here right now is that, as we were saying, the populations that are being targeted here are really the most disenfranchised. They're poor people who are on Medicaid, and they're people who are LGBTQ who are having to fight for their rights um, in courts because of some of the laws that are being passed now. And they're people who don't have jobs. There's so many people who are vulnerable, and it's very hard to organize when you have to put food on the table, you know? So this is where the Democratic Party comes in, and it needs to be out there tapping communities, not just telling people before elections, well, have a house party, invite our friends, because that's not going to get to the people who really need Mm -hmm. to be hearing the message and really need to be turned out to vote. 
They need to be reaching new populations to get out to vote. And that is not happening, did not happen last time. I think the Democrats really dropped the ball big time on getting out the vote among populations that most need to be getting out there. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, yes, of course, if we could organize these groups, they need to be better tapped and organized and encouraged to run for office as well as, you know, coming out and sharing their stories. But it's a several-pronged thing. And I think some of what we were hearing from, from, from Nick earlier is um, that there's this confluence of events that's going on right now. It has to do with education defunding, and it has to do with, and again, the governor um, just appointed a new education director. I just learned this. So I'm coming yep. back. And this is a person who believes in school privatization. Right. So, you know, the person who, and I don't know exactly under what circumstances, a previous education department director left, but she left. And my guess is she and might have disagreed with the policy. she's certainly welcome to come on our podcast. And she is very welcome <laughs> to. We would love it and welcome it. But now... You know, she's going to get this perfect group of people around her. And I'm talking about the governor who agree with what she's doing and this merger of state government agencies so that where there used to be a role for outside nonprofit groups to inform and educate and lobby for certain changes in certain populations, that won't be allowed anymore. So the government has almost complete control. And this is something everybody needs to be aware of and mindful of because we need voices speaking up. We need more people than ever speaking up and sharing their stories about how they're being personally That's affected right. by what's happening. That's right. And by the way, if people want to share their stories with us, please email us at yes. boskamakbasu at gmail.com because we really do want to, want to hear from um, everyone. How are you feeling? How are how you being feeling? affected by all of this? And what are you doing about it? You know, part, part of us... We were talking before we, we hit the record button about there are times when we just want to just give it all up, just yep. move to Timbuktu, mm -hmm. India. Mm -hmm. Let's go to Goa. Let's, mm -hmm. let's buy a house on the beach in Goa and right. run away. And, right. you know, we're not, I'm not going to do that. Maybe you will, but I'm not, not going to do that. <laughs> no, we have to stay here and fight for what we believe in. We yeah. have to. I mm -hmm. mean, as you've said before, you know, we could be retired and cruising around on some rubber float in some body of water somewhere. <laughs> what time is it? Let's go. Sitting on a <laughs> cocktail. Exactly. Whatever that is. But, you know. I, I will find I out. Had one. Right. <laughs> no, but instead, we're here doing this work because we really care about what's happening to yeah. our state. Here's a question, Julie. I'm going to ask this to you because you're a lifelong Iowan. You know this state as well as anyone inside a note. You know the Iowa culture and persona, and you grew up as, as an Iowan. So, these same, some of these same changes that are taking place in Iowa are taking place across the country in terms of the constriction of media and, for example, the predominance of right-wing talk radio that's owned by smaller and smaller and larger groups that are very conservative. Um, but they don't seem to be having the same impact in other states that they're having in Iowa. A few. I mean, Florida, okay, Florida is like Iowa, and there are a few other states in the South, but a lot of the country has escaped this. And I'd like to know, what do you think it is about the culture of Iowa that makes it more of a tacit, proving audience or of whoever is in power at the time? Number one, I think, and we'll get, we'll get to this in another, another podcast, but I think the um, voter purging 
role, purging of the voter rolls. I think lessening the ability to vote in terms of cutting back the days that you can vote, the hours you can vote. Um, All of these things make a difference in an election when there could be a 2% or 1% margin of of victory. Okay, but there's public opinion polls that show that there is acceptance of a lot of her policies among the general majority. Not vouchers, you know. Not vouchers, but these LGBTQ actions, for example. Well, yeah, and I think that's just a matter of education. I think, I think, I think we need to do a better job of of educating people. Um, But I don't think Iowa people are necessarily, um, I think they're still purple. I think there is still um, the possibility that if elections were were covered, were, were fair, and I think we're moving further and further away from that. You know, think of, I know people who had their, registration purge from the voter rolls even though they've lived in the same house the same home for decades they voted in every election they they just happened to check to make sure they were registered to vote and lo and behold their name had been purged now how often has that happened i don't know but if it only takes one percent or two percent to change the outcome of an election it makes a difference you know some of some of the races in this state were decided by two to six votes. So any effort along those lines can tip the difference between, well, we lost a member of Congress in Iowa. Uh, yeah, those things make a difference. So that's just let one me thing. recap some of what Nick Johnson said about, about this. He said um, the education level of the voter makes a difference. Mm-hmm. And he talked about the rural and urban split. And he said in rural communities, they're, they just tend to be much more conservative. There's a lack of interaction between them and different people of, of different backgrounds. He said newspapers make a difference. Um, he said churches, the role of you know far right-wing and evangelical churches, make a huge difference in the way people vote and in the way people think about issues and might make them more receptive to some of the kind of politicking that's going on right now. Um, he said he said that these churches are in fact now a very effective branch of the Republican Party was his quote. Mm-hmm. Um and again he says six percent of people are in trade unions now. It used to be fifty percent. So the lack of trade union membership has been a really big issue. Um so I think that yeah, I mean voter purges sure they're a thing, but I think that you know, there are things that are specific to this state. Um and and you know, we're talking, our topic is what the hell happened to Iowa. It's mm-hmm. not what are the general forces around the country. I want to know about Iowa and Iowans. Why are Iowans buying into this notion of cutting back, you know, food stamps for people to the extent that they are? Well, again, it, I mean, it, elections do have consequences and these kinds of voter intimidation and voter purging practices. Yeah, but people voted. I mean, a majority of people voted for these people who are in office right now. That's right. But there were a lot of people who didn't get to the polls. Perhaps they didn't, it didn't fit into their timetable, whatever. They didn't have child care, whatever. Do I don't know. That, okay. Do you seriously think that the election outcome would have been different if, if, you know, more people had had more access to the polls? Do you really think that? I think I that, I think that a number of races could have gone another direction. Not necessarily, I mean, we're, 
here's in Iowa, and we'll get other people to talk about this, but a few cycles ago during COVID, the Iowa Democratic Party decided not to go door knocking out of out of fear. This of, cycle, they didn't go they, door knocking. They dropped the ball on a lot of the races. Some of the races they did, some of the candidates they did. But again, we'll have others talk about that. Uh, I do think the narrative in this state has changed dramatically. The dominant of right-wing radio is, without a doubt, stronger than it's ever been in my lifetime. Right. I, mean, I was a talk show host. Yeah, you, you know? were. I was for on, one of those stations that is now a totally... 50,000-watt clear channel station. Yep. There are no progressive voices that I am aware of in Iowa. So that means when you look at when you look at what happened to Burlington, that used to be a Democratic stronghold, mm-hmm. uh, they, 12 hours a day, their AM radio is right-wing talk. Were you in radio during the during the dust-up over the Fairness doctor- no. Doctrine when that got removed? Because that was in the late 80s, Yeah, I guess. it was early, early 80s. Okay. But, um, so there was a Fairness Doctrine in place when you were on radio? There was, a, yeah, and there was a, there was an effort, uh, there was a, a requirement that so much programming had to be targeted to the community, good, and that sort of thing. So besides your voice, was there more liberalism on local radio? Oh, not it. Here's what's changed. Ownership has changed. Ownership has consolidated. And Nick talked about this too. It used to be that that you couldn't own so many newspapers and radio stations and televisions in a market. There used to be restrictions on how many you could you could own. Those are gone. So you have this consolidation of media entities. So. You can own. You can own. Rupert Murdoch can own news newspapers and radio stations. It's like corporate farming in a way. Well, I don't know. Liberal voices. Um, there what what there wasn't was a, a just a dominance of right wing talk radio mm. all over the, the. So so when when I was on WHO, we had an afternoon host. Okay. Mm. Mm. Well, you get somebody like Rush Limbaugh. Mm. That program is syndicated. Mm. And and radio stations don't have to pay much for it, if mm. anything, mm. and it starts taking off mm. all over the country. Mm-hmm. So you don't no longer have John London, who was who was the afternoon local talk show host. Mm-hmm. You have Rush Limbaugh, and you have Rush Limbaugh in Burlington, and you have Rush Limbaugh in the Quad Cities, and you have Rush Limbaugh in Sioux City. Mm. There's no escaping Rush Limbaugh, <laughs> right? The other thing is, you know, we talked about this with Nick a little bit also, is is there something about talk radio that attracts more conservative voices, makes it a more, I don't know, um, a better fit for conservatives to be on than liberals? And I've heard it said before, and I asked Nick this and he agreed, actually, that Liberals tend to be much more intellectual and quote unquote high minded in their responses to things. And it's not a forum that lends itself to, you know, that kind of thinking or explaining or whatever. You have to be quick and on your feet. And it takes a certain kind of personality to be able to do that. Now, you obviously did that on your shows, but I don't know. I've, I've really never heard that many people with progressive views on talk radio as there are conservatives. And I mean, way back before the Fairness Doctrine Mm -hmm. went away. I think that that's just not a format that lends itself to 
a great deal of thinking. Okay. So it's a business, Mm. right? Mm. Just like newspapers are a business. Mm. You know what it's like to be in a newsroom where clicks are valued, Mm -hmm. okay? Oh, this has got to get a lot of clicks. Well, anger generates clicks. Mm -hmm. Angertainment Mm -hmm. was a term I first heard from a candidate running against Lauren Boebert. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's this phenomenon called angertainment. Mm -hmm. People tune in to see, you know, it's it's drama. Right. It's anger. It's hate. And if you and I are having a nice conversation about, you know, La 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 la. Mm. We're not we're not inspiring this hate, this mm. anger, mm. this you know, it's mm-hmm. it's it's it sells newspapers, it brings in listeners which advertisers want. It's a business. Mm. And uh it's not only a business, but it has great power over the electorate. Yeah, I think that newspapers actually I mean the the right loves to say that, that, you know, that sensationalism sells newspapers, but I don't think that's what really sells newspapers. I think what sells newspapers is really well-crafted investigative stories that expose something that's going on in your community and not the dissent, not the constant, you know. Push back on that a little bit. Sure. In the newsroom, mm. aren't stories that get a lot of clicks touted as as valuable? Absolutely. Sports stories get the most clicks. Okay. You know, of anything. So that's what attracts. Yeah. But that's neither here nor there. That's not conflict. That's not controversy. That's not anger. That's just people love sports, right? I don't think that newspapers are going out of, unless it's the old tabloid like the New York Post we're talking about, are going out of their way to be sensational in the way that radio does. Or to feed the bigotry that drives this kind of stuff? I'm not, don't misunderstand. I'm not putting newspapers in the same bucket as right-wing talk radio. What I am saying is that it's a business. And I disagree that that clicks for in, in newspapers ought to be thought of in any other way as what they are. Mm. They're clicks. Mm. That doesn't mean, you know, if you can write about Kim Kardashian mm. or a or a puppy, mm. you know, put a picture of a puppy in there. That's that gonna always get, sells. Yeah, they, that's going to get Puppies a lot more clicks. <laughs> We're in a fine mess, Julie. We are, you know. And I was thinking about just our experience yesterday. We were, we were just going through the motions. We didn't know what we were doing. We were... and then you know the responses we got. I mean, this one, one we were talking about the pipeline um, question because we were in a community, Newton, where pipeline is going to go under people's property mm-hmm. without their permission, it looks like. And um, this one woman was saying to us, she doesn't understand why people are opposed because um, she said, you know, a lot of farmers need need the money, so they're willing to let their property out for for that kind of reward that they're going to get and they'll be paid richly by these companies that are trying to build a pipeline. She said, I don't understand what people are scared about. People are just too darn scared, she said. They're scared about everything. I mean, they're scared about railway stations. They're scared about... No, they're not just unfoundedly scared. I mean, there are real reasons. There have been pipes burst. There have been terrible environmental consequences. And, And, you know, there is no precedent or there should be no precedent for government being able to come along and support private businesses in taking people's land away without their permission. 
For what? For a big business enterprise, one of the most lucrative ones, when there is no clear environment. And they're trying to pitch it as if there's a great environmental benefit to the community. There absolutely is not. It, that is the fear mongering that's going on, yeah, right? Yeah. It's not the people who don't want to give up their rights to their land who are fear mongering. It's the others. If you don't do this, then ethanol will go bust and, you know, whatever else they can spread to intimidate people. I go back to our conversation yesterday with the two women and the statement that one of them made about, well, if vouchers happen and, and people send their kids to private schools, there'll be more accountability in the private schools. And I just wanted to scream. Yeah. Yeah. There yeah. is less accountability in the exactly. And she, she didn't. I mean, there's so much misinformation know. out she there. Didn't she didn't know. realize she was a sweetheart, but she didn't know, and yeah. that's what's so yeah. sad. I know people do not know their sources of information are drying up. And 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 what a classic example from yeah. a town that used to have a public school, uh-huh. but when, when economic forces a changed, private school, you mean? A pu- pu- public school. Oh. No, they had a public school. But when the classroom size got below twenty, mm. that's when they that's when they eliminated the public school in this little town in Iowa. The towns never recovered. Mm. The towns never recovered, and that's what's going to be happening because if twenty right. students per pupil right. is the cutoff point, and 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 folks start leaving public schools for these private religious schools, that's sorry. Gonna... What what twenty students per? Yeah. Well, she was saying that they they had they had a public school, yeah, in Kellogg. Kellogg, but when the student population dropped below twenty per classroom, uh-huh. that's when they lost their public school. Oh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, in that follow up question yeah. was, so what what did that do to your community? Well, there's nothing left there now. Oh. Pretty much everything's gone. Oh. But, ladies and gentlemen, oh. yeah, I mean. The one thing that was interesting is these women seemed very supportive of immigration, right? They said, yeah, we need the labor. We need mm-hmm. the labor, like so many small communities. You know, um, in Greene County, they yeah. have a diversity initiative, and they are, they've involved citizens and, and government aid, agencies to go around within Greene County uh-huh. and talk about this initiative of, of trying to bring in uh, Latino families in particular. Mm. That come to the state maybe on seasonal work visas mm. or seasonal uh, uh, jobs, mm-hmm. and they're and they're going to make a concerted effort to get them to stay and bring their families into Greene County. Nice. Um, and what you know, they were so smart about it. Yeah, they you know, they they realized that there was a potential for backlash. Mm-hmm. They set up town meetings. They went around to the community, got buy-in. Da 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 da. That is being proactive. That is so that is smart. being proactive. Absolutely. So, how can people be proactive here and now? Well, um, of course, probably most people listening to our podcast are proactive. They would. You know, they, they we 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 probably have a pretty self-selected audience. I but I Although think people really are asking, what can we do? I mean, well, what I we think don't, don't get sucked into the helpless, helpless malaise that that we are fighting yeah. within our within our our own conversations. Right. Um, and Use your voice. Speak up. Share your truth. Write letters to the editor. Contact your legislators. You know, I'll bet you. And again, this goes back to. A lack of information that's growing and growing. It used to be that if somebody was running for the 
legislature in Des Moines, there'd be a little there'd be little stories about who they are and what they are, what you know, what their views and that sort of thing. That kind of news, that kind of information doesn't get a lot of clicks. And it's gonna be going away as the more news hole shrinks. Where is that information gonna come from? So people have to be more self informed, mm. more proactive about learning about their candidates. And you know, having moved away from Iowa, yeah, and to a place where I didn't know anybody, mm-hmm. I didn't know, you know, like here, I know who's who and who's running who for what and da da da. But when I moved into a town where I didn't know anybody, yeah. I had to go online and look at who the candidates were, and the, and of course, I didn't know anybody. So, well, who do you think is the right one to run? You know, yeah, for the primaries and that sort of thing. Yeah, I, it was a fascinating experience because that's that's what that's how you learn. That's how you learn. That's mm-hmm. how you learn. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have to do more self-educating, more, I don't. Well, here's here's a place where you really deserve some kudos, Julie. And oh. I'm not just kissing up to you here because of your great cooking. I wanted to play you that you have made a huge difference. And I constantly hear this. You have really? by creating the Iowa Writers Collaborative because you have tapped people around the state in areas of the state that don't get a lot of coverage to share their writings, their commentaries with with the community through Substack. And mm-hmm. you've got, what, 30 writers, is it now? Uh, 28. Who yeah. do that, 28 mm-hmm. on a semi-regular basis. And I think that is really changing things. And again, I hear that. So talk wow. a little bit about how that idea came to you and how you think it's it's going. Well, okay, thanks. I started my own Substack a couple of years ago in the height of COVID quarantine just for friends and and uh, started sending out give me something to do because we couldn't leave the co- couldn't leave the condo mm-hmm. and it it grew and grew people would share it and uh, I started getting subscribers whose names I didn't recognize I was mm-hmm. like oh that's cool mm-hmm. um and then I added a paid component to it last July and the Substack launched to eventually do that mm-hmm. and. And people started paying for it. I thought, holy cow, why would you, you pay for this? When you can get it for free. Exactly. Yeah. I, and, and, but what I did was I said any proceeds from the paid subscriptions would go to fund scholarships for the Okaboji Writers Retreat, mm-hmm. which is a, that's another whole thing. But it's a, mm-hmm. it's a thing to get people to tell their stories. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so when I realized people would pay for a subscription column, I thought of folks like Art Cullen in, mm-hmm. in Storm Lake, who's trying valiantly to keep a local a family-owned newspaper alive, mm-hmm. Doug Burns from Carroll, and other people. I thought, okay, this model could work. Mm-hmm. And then what What I really wanted to do was focus on the reader experience. Mm-hmm. Because as a reader, if you could get a variety of Iowa writers under one umbrella, mm-hmm. because we all get a ton of emails into our yeah. own basket, we could get one that would introduce us to other writers in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, and I called Doug and Art and Chuck Offenberger and a few others, and we had a Zoom call and thought, well, okay, let's let's try it. And they're thrilled. You know, Doug, I, Art, Art had a column the other day. He texted me. He said, God, I got eight paid subscribers from this. Wow. I mean, that makes a difference. Of course. It makes a difference. Of course it, it does. It really does. So, And people are clicking on them. And do you... Um, do you keep tabs on, you know, sort of how how well they're being read and um, how what good distribution you know, circulation they have? The the, the the nice thing about the Substack mm. 
uh, program is I don't know who Art's subscribers are. Mm-hmm. I don't know who's paying to subscribe to Art. Those mm-hmm. are his subscribers. Mm-hmm. Those are That's his revenue. We don't do any revenue sharing. Mm-hmm. I do produce the weekly column that is basically a, a, a wow. roundup of all of their columns in one in one uh, Sunday email. Um, so I see those numbers. But, mm-hmm. you know, um, it, it's growing. I mean, I, it's growing by leaps and bounds. And it's lovely that each writer um, in the collaborative is giving a boost to the other writers by having their names and right. links to their columns right. um, under each of their pieces, which is great. It exposes right. people to voices they may never have seen before. And, you know, back in the day, the Des Moines Register used to be a statewide newspaper. Mm. And we'd have a bureau in Waterloo. We'd have a bureau in in the Quad Cities. We'd have bureaus all over the state. Mm -hmm. And it really was a statewide newspaper. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a business. And, of course, cost money to distribute print newspapers around the state. And it became more and more uh, impossible for for that kind of distribution to take place. But now, Mm -hmm. with Substack, Sunday morning, you can... There's a there's a column from Waterloo, and I'm learning about Davenport and the Quad Cities in ways that I didn't know. And it's fantastic. It is. It, it is. really is fantastic. Oh, and Mary Swander has this wonderful column where she's nurturing emerging writers. Mm-hmm. So she had an autistic young man write a story about what it's like to be autistic, mm-hmm. and um, she she oh I mean it's just. These are wonderful stories, and she's nurturing them. And because she was a writing professor at Iowa State, mm-hmm. she she's really developing some new talent. So I'm I'm really what's, proud of it. What's so lovely about that is, from a public policy standpoint, you know, you don't have to necessarily hammer people over the head with, you know, we need empathy for these cases, we need funding for these causes. Just the simple sharing of a story and some right. of the obstacles that people have to face and how they overcome. And, you know, which is sort of a metaphor for being able to take the publishing industry into one's own hands in a grassroots way and use the ability of of the online technologies to get your word out there without waiting for some book publisher to come along or, you know, some paid syndicate to give you a spot, which are very competitive. But seeing the sort of collaborative nature of all of this is... It really is encouraging, and that is something that should let you sleep well at night, at least, in <laughs> these very troubling times. And anybody can do it. I mean, y- yeah. anybody listening right now, you can start your own podcast. Mm-hmm. You can start your own Substack column. You, mm-hmm. you know, we have, we have a, a, a criteria for becoming a part of the Iowa Writers Collaborative, mm-hmm. but that shouldn't stop anybody. Right. Do your own thing. Right. Do your own thing. Exactly. There's some guy in some... Some southern Iowa town that started a podcast on bourbon. Really? Yeah. Yeah. How many columns can you write about? It's a podcast. Oh. How many podcasts can you do about, about bourbon? bourbon? Apparently he has thousands of subscribers. Well, I guess they really like bourbon out there. But, you know, what's your niche? What's your niche? What's your, you know. Amazing. Iowans living in India. Well, you could start your own podcast on, I mean. I could. I could. In fact, a funny thing, you know, I when I was there, somebody, a Facebook friend, or I don't even know if she is, I think she is one, um, posted underneath my post about being in India. I had posted some pictures. She posted, she's from Hurlin, Iowa, and her son works um, for the federal U.S. government in India. You know, he's an attache with the consulate, and she said she was there visiting him. 
I mean, isn't that amazing? You know, and then, of course, I mentioned that to someone else who knows the back in Iowa, who knows the family, that there are Iowa connections that come up all the time. I've seen them many times when I've been there. I heard a parable one time years ago that I think about a lot. And the story is of a man who gets on a train in New York and he has two small children and they're just being obnoxious. They're running up and down the hall, the, uh, the train, and they're just, and he's just not paying any attention to him. And somebody comes up to him really judgmentally and says, sir, you need to control your children. And he looked up startled and he said, oh, I'm so sorry. Their mother just died. Mm. And we're coming home from the hospital. And the point of that story is we all have things going on in our lives and we almost always make judgments about other people until we get to know their stories. Right. Exactly. And that's what we want to do. We want to tell people stories. Absolutely. There has been some good news. Let's let's end on a happy note, Rekha. The Yes, that's Julie. Do you have any? Yes. The Sioux City Community School District unanimously, unanimously passed a resolution affirming its support for LGBTQ students in the district. And the resolution was approved, did I say unanimously, during the regular school big board meeting on Monday night. So there's a fantastic news. There's a bit of good news. And you know, there's one thing happening in the state of Iowa right now that I think just about everybody agrees about, and that is Caitlin Clark. Have you been watching? It is so exciting to see her play for the Hulapas women's basketball team. Oh my God. I, I, I was up mesmerized the other night watching her. And now we have Friday night to look forward to again, where they're going to do the final four. Final four is called, right? Or big four or something like that. I never <laughs> watch sports. I have to, because I don't have the terminology. Um, I don't know a lot about it. I only really watch my sons in Little League wrestling. But this is huge. It's so fun. It's so great to see that women power. And, and I think... That's one thing, as you said, Julie, that people across the state of Iowa can agree on. It's really exciting. Let's hold on to that thought. You've been listening to What the Hell Happened to Iowa with Reka Basu and Julie Gamak. We'd love to have you subscribe to this podcast. Just go to www.julieandreka.substack.com and welcome to our tribe. Brought to you by a couple of Liberty-loving moms. Ooh.
our liberties we promise our rights we will maintain we know that's what we say but is that what we do oh 